that, I would like to start by saying a couple of things about how we read the Gospels that I think might be helpful to us in understanding Mark or any other Gospel. Because I think sometimes we don't use a very um, wise approach as to how we think about them. You know, we can almost think of the Gospels as just sort of being biographies. And they're just sort of going through and giving an account of the things Jesus did in his life. Well, I don't think that's the way they were written. Obviously, they're not biographies in the sense that they skip the majority of Jesus' life altogether. And they give a disproportionate (laughs) emphasis to the last week of his life. But more than that, I don't believe the Gospels were written in the style of a biography that was just given to tell the events and the situations of the life of someone. Now, maybe many biographies aren't exactly written that way either. But I think that these Gospels were written with particular points that they were seeking to make. I want you to think of it this way, and I think this, this has really helped me when I study the Gospels is to ask the question, out of all the things that Mark knew about Jesus, we think Mark was a companion of Peter who had told him many things, all the things he could have found out about Jesus, all the material that he had to work with then, why did Mark choose to include the particular stories that he did? And why did he include them in the order that he did? And I think once you start asking and answering that question, you begin to understand more deeply the points that Mark is making. You have more insight into what's really being communicated about Jesus here. Because, you know, John said, if everything about Jesus were written down, the the world couldn't contain the books that could be written. So we know that there was a lot more material available than what the gospel writers used. That's surely true of gospels like Matthew and John, written by eyewitnesses who had been companions of Jesus over a long period of time. Can you imagine all of the things that they could have chosen to write about? So I think it will help us to think of these things as they are selecting particular things to tell about Jesus, and even particular things to tell about the events they tell about, for a reason. Mark wants to present to us some things about Jesus that will help us, that will teach us, that will exhort us. And so that's the way we're going to try to look at this, is try to see sort of the meaning in the context, and not just read these as random events that are sort of being uh, recounted at random, just to get a bunch of stuff in here about Jesus. Do you have any questions or comments about that introduction to this? So each of the different Gospels have a different uh, purpose? I think so, or different purposes. I think so. I think you will see, even in some cases, a story being used in one Gospel... Uh, sort of with in the line of a particular theme that that gospel is developing. And in a different gospel, it will actually be contributing more to a different theme that's being presented. Same story. Same story, yeah, exactly. Not that there's, you know... I mean, obviously there are many true things that we'll learn in this outside of the themes that Mark is developing. But I think it will really give us a lot of insight if we start actually seeing some of the reasons Mark is putting these stories together. We do that when we're preaching or teaching. You use particular illustrations. Do preachers just sort of use random illustrations? Well, I thought of a good illustration this week. I think I'll use that. Well, no. They use illustrations that contribute to the overall message they're trying to present. I think Mark does the same thing here. I think he's got a particular message he's trying to present, or several things he's trying to teach us and lead us to in our understanding about the Lord. And so he carefully uh, crafts this, using totally the truth, real events about Jesus, but using them in a, in a sequence and uh, bringing out certain points and thoughts that will, will really help us in that. And certainly, there's more in this than what we'll get out of it. There always is. There's more depth. Uh, I've been through Mark 
been through Mark 1, probably teaching it, I suppose, certainly hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And yet there's still more to see. And I remember several years ago when I went through Mark with about three young preachers. And I'd been through Mark a lot, even then, a lot. And uh, those young preachers had really helped me a lot in other books we'd studied. They always studied ahead, and they had great insights, and it was always really stimulating. But I thought, in Mark, I'm not going to get that much out of this, because I've been through this so much, there's not going to be a whole lot they're going to share with me that I haven't already thought about. Oh, wow. There were so many things they brought out that I hadn't thought about, things that were just right there. And so we'll never exhaust this, and we'll never fully get to all of the meaning and all of the, the deeper purposes and themes that are here. But if we can at least try to see the points that are being made, I think it will bring the stories out more. <laughs> and I think that we'll really see some things that will help us. So what helps you to kind of think about that? Just to ask yourself why he, why he puts it in there? and Ask questions. Absolutely. Why is this here? What is this saying? How does this fit in with the context? You know, you know, really about almost every detail, you can ask the question, well, why? You know, what, what is this contributing to, to the point, to the story? Is this just a detail that's put in to sort of give some, some flavor to the story? Or is there something that I need to learn from this? Why questions help us so much when we're studying the Bible? Because they just make us think about it more. And we do that with other things. If you're reading the epistles, well, you're always asking those questions. Well, why is this here? And, and how is this contributing to the theme and to this, the development of the thought? And we, we pour over those. We tend to come to the Gospels and we treat them as sort of bedtime stories to be read over kind of lightly and to appreciate in that way, but not to really look at more deeply. Well, that's a shame. I mean, obviously, they're great stories. But there's so much more to them than that. And so that, those are the things that have helped me in studying this. I mean, uh, many, many years ago, someone suggested that to me in studying the Gospels. And, and I've come to see more and more. That's really helpful. Anything else you want to say by way of introduction, Shane? I've heard somebody explain this as the reason they might have written these things differently is because of the audiences they were speaking to. Matthew being written to the Jews, Mark being written to the Gentiles, Luke being written to the Greek, and John being written to general. Um, what do you think about that? Yes, I, I think there's something to that. I think we can go beyond that, but I think certainly those are valid observations. And, you know, it's very clear. If you just read through the Gospels carefully, they all have their particular flair. And uh, you would say Matthew was written to the Jews, among many other things, that he's constantly citing Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And you see so much of that in, in, in Matthew. You see John's purpose, among other things, that you might believe, by how he recounts some of the evidences, and some of the miracles and signs and so forth. And, and we'll see some things in Mark that I, I think it's probably valid that Mark was written for the Romans. That's, that's probably a valid thing. I don't know that that will be so clear, though, as just some things Mark really does emphasize. And we'll, we'll begin to see some of those things and see the type of people Mark's writing to, but more the type of point he's wanting to communicate. All right, let's look at the uh, first section. Would somebody read the first eight verses? The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with, cam clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming, who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. 
I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Verse 1 <coughs> tells you what John's going to write about. He's going to write about what? The Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Alright. We're going to be looking at Jesus in this book. And yet in this initial paragraph, who was the main character? Now why, if Mark plans to write about Jesus, does he start out telling us about the work of John? Because John was to prepare the way for Jesus. Yes. John was preparing the way for Jesus, and Mark is preparing the way for Jesus by telling of the work of John. Now when we say that John prepared the way for Jesus, what was he preparing? Like a, a road or something? People's hearts. Yes, he was preparing people for Jesus. Now, think about what you can learn in this paragraph about how John prepared people for Jesus. What did he do? Baptized. He baptized. What kind of a baptism was it? Of repentance. Baptism of repentance. John preached this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's a key element in John's preaching. Not only here, but even the other gospel writers emphasize that idea of the preaching of repentance. We don't use the word repentance every day. What does it mean to repent? To turn back. Yes, literally to decide to change. Someone has said that it's sort of like making a U-turn in your life. When you repent, you decide you're going to turn around and go back to the Lord and away from the sinful lifestyle you were pursuing. Now, how did John preaching a baptism of repentance prepare the way for Jesus? was suggestion that they would need to change. Exactly. You can't come to Jesus without being ready to change. That's fundamental. And so the first thing he's telling them to get them ready for Jesus is you've got to change. And that's true of everybody who ever will come to Jesus. You cannot come as you are. You've got to be willing to make the decision to change your life. Now, that's not the only thing John preached to get people ready for Jesus. What was the other main theme of his preaching here in this section? That was connected with the baptism of repentance, but I'm thinking of a whole other theme. There's one greater than I that's coming. Yeah. If you're going to prepare somebody... For somebody who's coming, it makes sense that you tell them about the somebody who's coming. And so John does. And what he tells about the one who's coming is basically to emphasize what? He's mightier, better, more. Yes, how great he is. He is so great that what? Yeah. Now just how fit would you have to be to have the task of untying somebody's shoes? You know, would you only allow some high dignitary the privilege of untying your shoes? That, that was considered the lowest job of a slave. And notice he says, I'm not fit to stoop down and untie the, the thong of his sandals. I mean, he's not He's not worthy to do even the simplest, most basic, most demeaning task for Jesus. That's how much greater Jesus was than John. And that's fundamental to being prepared for the coming of Jesus because we've got to know how great he is or we won't listen to him the right way. If somebody comes, there's just an ordinary guy, you listen to him, and you might believe him, you might not. depends on what they say. You understand who Jesus is and everything he says. You better do it. Because he is much mightier and greater than what we are. 
Now, again, why does Mark start here? To get his audience and us ready for the Jesus he's going to teach about. For us to be ready for the rest of the book, we've got to be ready to change. And we've got to realize this Jesus we're going to be looking at is incredibly awesome. Of a whole different category than anybody else we've ever seen. I think that's the main themes that I see in this section. There's a couple more points I'll make, but I'll pause and let you make comments or ask questions. Well, he says something kind of unusual here that catches my attention, and that's about John's lifestyle. What was that like? Strange. <laughs> Yeah. Strange in what way? He wore camel's hair and a leather belt and ate locusts and wild honey. What does that tell you about him? Wasn't very wealthy. Yeah. He had a very simple, basic wilderness lifestyle. I gather he didn't go to fine clothing stores. <laughs> you know, uh, he. You know, you use what you've got out there. And uh, uh, that he, uh, let, me make sure, let me look at one thing here just to make sure I'm not missing something that is time sensitive. Okay. Um, you know, he, and, and what he ate was what you had to eat out there. You know, I mean, you get what you can. No. I want you to think about this. Who made John the one to prepare the way for Jesus? Who selected him for that role? God did. Could God have selected someone else if he had wanted to? Yeah. I think it's intriguing that for the incredibly significant role of preparing the people for the coming of his son, God chooses a man who's poor and simple and absolutely unpretentious. I take it that God's not real concerned about us having an extravagant diet or us wearing fancy formal clothes or anything like that. If he had a been, this would have been an excellent opportunity to demonstrate that by picking someone a little bit more high class to uh, prepare the way for your son. I've often wondered, you reckon in most uh, churches around, John would be allowed to preach looking like he does? You know, I mean, if uh, we're in a church that's accustomed to clerical robes and special garments, or maybe just accustomed to formal clothing. Uh, you know, we might think, well, you couldn't do that. That's disrespectful. <laughs> well, evidently the Lord didn't see it that way. Other comments and thoughts you want to present through the first eight verses? Um, he says, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, I guess me and my dad were kind of talking about that yesterday. How that's talking about in Acts where that's repeated. <laughs> but if he's talking to a big crowd, but then it's only referring to the apostles, why would he announce it to the big crowd? Alright. It's a good question. Here's the first thing I want us to do. Why does he bother to tell us that? What's the point he's making in the context? Yes. It's telling how great Jesus is. This is really not Mark's attempt to go into a detailed doctrinal explanation of the Holy Spirit. This is saying, oh, he's on a whole different level. <laughs> Only thing I can do is baptize you with the water. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I mean, wow. He is so much greater. That's his point. Now, understanding all that's involved in being baptized with Holy Spirit uh, is another question, and I'm not sure the answer to that question. 
um, exactly how to look at that. Whether he's talking about the specific baptism of the Holy Spirit on the apostles of the 120 in Acts 1 and 2, or if perhaps he's talking more about how Jesus is the one who would pour out his spirit on all who turn to him in a more comprehensive sense. Uh, that may be a better explanation for that and maybe why he would say that in a more generalized sense here. But the point in the context is, he, he's not just a water baptizer. <laughs> he even can baptize in the Holy Spirit. You better listen to him. I like John's humility in not paralleling Jesus with the people, paralleling him with himself and saying, I'm not worthy. This is obviously something the people looked up to. Yes. And how humble he was in saying, not only, he didn't say, well, you're not worthy to untie this strap. Yeah. I'm not worthy. And if John isn't, how much less us? I want to say something back about the Holy Spirit question, too. Uh, and, and make a point or two. Every once in a while, I'll say a couple things about teaching Mark to non-Christians. I believe I'm right. That in all the time I've taught Mark 1, I don't believe I've ever had a non-Christian ask me that question. I'm not saying they won't ever. But I've had several Christians ask me that. Because we wonder about that. And that's a question that we've struggled with and wrestled over and so forth. When I teach non-Christians, I would like not to complicate their understanding by bringing in a whole lot of my questions and doubts into the text. They're going to see it pretty well the way I said it, or they're going to have something in their head, whatever it is, and I generally don't even mention that verse. If something's said about it, I mention the greatness of Jesus in that. Um, if they ask a more detailed question, then I try to answer it the best I could, or whatever. But, I want to suggest that we do something when we're teaching. And that is that we listen carefully to the question that people ask. Because, often people will ask one question, and we'll jump to our question, which may not be the question they asked. And we give them way too much information, and we start going off on something that they weren't even thinking about, they don't understand, and it doesn't make much sense to them. Uh, so, I try to listen for their question. Their question may be a really simple one. Like, what's the Holy Spirit? Well, if they ask what's the Holy Spirit, I tell them, well, there's three that are God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, that's who the Holy Spirit is. Now, I might say, did that answer your question? And if it did, I'm not going to tell them any more than what they asked for, because if they're not able to ask it, they're probably not able to understand it. So don't answer the question you would have asked. Answer the question they did ask, if you want to be clear and understood, and lead them step by step to seeing this for themselves. Does that make sense? It's good you asked the question, I'm not complaining about that at all. I'm just saying, <coughs> when we teach it to others... Let's let's answer their questions, not ours. Anything else to the first eight verses? Something that jumps out at me. Uh, <coughs> in verse 7, where he makes the reference to uh, not being worthy to stoop down and loosen up Jesus' sandal. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it jumped into my head You know, in the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, washing the, his apostles' feet. Yes. You know, here we have before Jesus' ministry even starting. You know, John saying, I "I'm not worthy to to bow down and to undo his shoe." And Jesus, at the close of his life, undoing the shoes and washing the feet of, of his apostles, and, and using that as a lesson uh, in John chapter 13. You know, Good point. Yeah, good point. Other thoughts? I mean, we may have talked about it before. The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and as far as what John's baptism did, uh, I guess it says it was for the forgiveness of sins. That's correct. And and maybe just the the language or the translation, the preaching. He was preaching a baptism. 
that sounds a little weird, but is that, you know, he well, I almost, think, almost make more sense to preach repentance and then be baptized for that. You see the Yes, English. I think the baptism here was almost a part of their repentance or was the symbol of their repentance. It's a, it's, you know, what, why were they baptized? What well, was a baptism, uh, it was kind of a repentance baptism, kind of a, uh, the kind of thing they did to, to sort of transition from their old life to their new life. So in that sense, I think he's preaching this repentance baptism. But it is for the forgiveness of sins, in the sense that uh, in the Old Testament there were various things people had to do to be forgiven, or just conditions that God sets. And it was, it, God really counted John's baptism as quite significant. I mean, you've got a passage in Luke 7, 29 and 30, that says something perhaps we wouldn't have expected it to say. But it says, when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So God considered it as a rejection of his purpose when they refused John's baptism. That was a significant event in the history of this. It was an important preparation, and God makes this as one of the conditions for forgiving their sins in the era of John. Going along with that at the end of verse 5 it says they were confessing their sins. Yes they were. Tie that in with the baptism or what? Well I think it ties in with the repentance primarily that this is really this idea, this baptism was involved in turning away from sin. They were confessing what they'd sinned in, the things they were turning away from, as they were making this U-turn in their life. This was not just a ritual. This was intended to be people turning their lives around and getting ready for the coming of Jesus. And John in uh, Luke 3, he preaches very specifically to various groups even, some of the specific changes that they need to make. And so people were being convicted we're sinners. We've been going the wrong direction. They're confessing what these sins are that they are turning away from as they're baptized. What, how do you picture what John was doing? I've always just had it way too simplistic, I think. It's like he's standing by the river and saying, hey, you all need to repent and be baptized. And he's dumping people in. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Very simplistic view of that. Was he teaching in... It says they were coming out to him. Yes, yes. They came out to him in the wilderness, near the Jordan River. So, you know, what do you see? A group of people at a time and, and, and interaction, teaching, and... Yeah, I think probably also so. Called, uh, was he called a herald? I mean, is that the same term? Preaching? I mean... I'm not sure if that term is used, but that's what he was. I mean, he's, he's announcing Jesus. I mean, you see him interacting with the crowd in Luke 3. And even in John 1. So I assume he was, you know, teaching and responding to questions and comments and that sort of thing. I think you'd have that kind of dialogue. You know, I don't know exactly how the baptisms worked. I mean, Jesus came to him and was baptized. It's about the only one we really see the actual event of the baptism take place. There's just not a whole lot even there to tell us that. But I would assume if they're confessing their sins and so forth, there may be some more discussion, at least, associated with the baptism, not just sort of a factory mass production or something. Mm -hmm. One more thing. Sure. Uh, is John Elijah? Yes and no. <laughs> he is the Elijah of Malachi 4, and Matthew 11, Matthew 17... Even a passage or two in Mark will emphasize that. But John says in John 1 that he was not Elijah right. in the sense that he was not the literal person Elijah. Reincarnated. Yeah. Or, Resurrected. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. He, was, he was not that Elijah. That was why, that is, like, why would he not acknowledge that? Or it was almost like he was, I don't know, keeping it a secret, like, 
I, I think it's because they meant, they meant the actual were you the real Elijah? He's not the real Elijah from 850 BC. Okay. But he is the Elijah of Malachi 4, the, the other Elijah that's coming. So in the same way they were asking if he was one of the prophets resurrected. No, they were asking, is he the prophet? I think they mean Deuteronomy 18, where Moses said that there would be a prophet like him the Lord would raise up. Okay. And that's Jesus, and that's cited also in Acts 3 and Acts 7, and applied to Jesus. So I'm not Elijah, and I'm not the prophet. Because the Jews often distinguished between the prophet and the Messiah. They didn't realize the prophet okay. of Deuteronomy 18 and the Christ well, one of the same person. So they ask him all three questions. Are you Elijah, the prophet, and the Christ? And he shortens his answer each time in John 1, clearly uncomfortable with their focusing their attention on him. And he then says, I'm the voice pointing to Jesus. Look at him. He tries to get the attention away from his person and onto Jesus that he was trying to point people to opposite of what we would do. Yes. John combined two remarkable characteristics. We're in Mark 1, the very beginning. Yeah. John combined two remarkable characteristics. Bold preaching and unselfish humility. You often think of bold preachers as prideful. John was very bold, but very humble. Never drawing attention to himself rejoicing when his followers left him to accompany Jesus, and saying even in John 3.30, he must increase and I must decrease. My joy is made full that they're following him. So John was extremely humble and yet very bold. A combination that's tough to find. There's a lot to say about John, really a lot about John in the New Testament, in the Gospels. There's a lot of things said about John. Not as many in Mark, perhaps, as there is in some of the other Gospels. Um, in confessing their sins, I've had questions asked that I couldn't really explain. That's probably not very hard to believe. But, um, in confessing their sins, did they confess their sins to each other, or to the Lord, or just confessing that they are sinners? What is that? Entail? I suspect they were confessing their sins to John and the others who were there. That's my understanding of that. Okay. And I don't think they were just confessing they were sinners, but they were confessing the things that they had done that are wrong. Okay. The things that they're going to change it. Okay. And also, <coughs> um, last one, I thought. Um, okay. with the, I've had been asked this question. This might seem, sound stupid, but they asked it in a really confident way. Um, would you have to be baptized again if you had sinned? in John baptism, or was this a one-time thing? As far as we know, it was a one-time thing. Okay. Okay. So I had the idea of it was almost like a sin offering. When you sin, or something like that, it was like an offering you There's would nothing I see to indicate that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Now, let me say another thing about studying Mark like this. And I'm fine with the questions and the discussion that we have. But I want you to think about this in terms of as far as grasping Mark. We often, you know, will pursue some other things that we're interested in, which is, is good, and it's good we're interested in. But I think it's a mistake to imagine that we should read Mark and make sure we fill in all the gaps with all the things the other Gospels have told us. You know, the first time I ever taught the Gospels, I taught them synoptically. <laughs> that is... We tried to go through them all at the same time, bringing them all together. I'm not saying that's bad. There's probably some things you learn from that. But I think you learn more when you take each gospel for what it says. And you might ask the question, why were these points omitted? You know, and maybe you'll see something in that to help you zero in on what Mark is showing us. But, but, you know, Mark is showing us a complete picture for his purposes. And so you can when I teach Mark to non-Christians, only very rarely do I bring in any reference to the other Gospels, either 
by reading them, or even by mentioning a fact in the other Gospels. Occasionally I will, and you'll see me do that a couple of times. But mostly I don't. Mostly I'm just saying, okay, what do you see here in this Gospel? So for our purposes, it's good to go everywhere and learn everything we can. But, but when we're really seeking to see what Mark is saying in and of itself, it's good to really see it from Mark's perspective. Does that make sense? So why do you think he didn't include the big story about John like, like the other Gospels would have? I mean, maybe just to point more to Jesus and not so much about John? Yes, I think that what we're seeing here is Mark using John as the lead-in to Jesus. <laughs> the lead-in in the sense that since Mark was preparing people for Jesus, or since John was preparing people for Jesus, Mark is using this to prepare his readers for the Jesus he's going to present. And so what he tells about John are the essential elements of what he did to get people ready for Jesus. Basically, John preached to get people ready for Jesus. What did he preach? Basically, two things. Basically, the baptism of repentance, emphasis there on repentance, and he preached about the greatness of Jesus. And that's kind of the things we need to to be prepared with to listen properly about Jesus in these next sections and chapters. So I see it as being Mark's design. He wasn't really trying to tell us about John's work <coughs> comprehensively, but he's trying to use John's work to get us ready to change and to see the greatness of Jesus so that we're spiritually prepared for the message about Jesus. That's the way I see it at the moment. Good question. So the message that John had is the same message that Mark had? I think, yes. I think Mark wants us to be ready to change and to see the greatness of Jesus. Yeah. Hello? Um, this is? <laughs> this is Chris. Okay, not a nurse. <laughs> they selling anything the rest of us want? Yeah, politicians. Oh, really? <laughs> wow. You can buy those over the phone. Oh, well, you can buy them in some cases. <laughs> but I think you have to have more money than we have, so it might be tempting otherwise. Uh, other thoughts on the first eight verses? I'm not very sure for politicians at the moment, so. Other thoughts on the first eight verses? Back to the baptism of John. Um, it includes the forgiveness of sins, so how is it separate from our baptism? Or how is it different? That's a good question. Um, well, I think it's different in that this baptism was preparatory. They were repenting with a view to the one who was coming. Whereas we believe that Jesus has died and rose again, and our baptism is into the death of Christ. So I think their baptism was preparatory in terms of what they were thinking. They were being baptized to get ready for the coming of Jesus. Our baptism is to join Jesus in his death where he shed his blood so that we can there receive the forgiveness of sins believing on, on Jesus already. That's what I would say. Not so much in the question of forgiveness of sins, per se, but in the question of our belief and our understanding of what's involved in the baptism. Anything else? It would be an exhausting study of Mark, but that was good. All right, 9 to 15. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of heaven, out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus went to John, and what did John do for Jesus? Baptized him. Now, you know, so many times when you read the Bible, it helps you to imagine you were there. So much of the Bible is intended to be visual. And so if you can kind of project yourself mentally back, you see John baptizing Jesus. Jesus comes up out of the water. And what would you have observed? The Spirit like a dove coming down on Jesus. What else? Heavens opening. Yes, and that's literally the skies being ripped apart. And what else? His voice. Whose voice? Yes. Can you imagine what that would have been like? Wow. Calling down from heaven, you are my beloved son, and you I'm well pleased. I mean, wow. Now, you ever seen anybody be baptized? I bet all of you have, haven't you? Anything like this ever happened when, when you, you've seen people be baptized? Or maybe when you were baptized? You know, I've never talked to anybody yet, and I've asked that question of a lot of people, who said they've ever observed something like this when they saw a baptism. So why this in this case? Absolutely. This is God's way of saying what John the Baptist said. He is great. He is my son. He is special and unique. You listen to him. This is what a powerful way to begin Mark's testimony about Jesus. As you see the Father himself rip the very skies apart to bring the Spirit down on Jesus and to solemnly affirm who Jesus really was. That would have been so incredible to witness. And it teaches us we better pay attention to Jesus. I would not normally say this if I was just talking to uh, non-Christians, but I find it intriguing, for whatever it's worth, that there's almost a kind of a enfolding the gospel in between these figures. Because here in the very beginning, we see something ripped apart in the affirmation that Jesus is God's Son. Well, you see it again at the end of Mark. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 38, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the centurion says, truly this man was the Son of God. And it's just interesting to see how Mark begins and ends his gospel with something being ripped apart in the declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. And that particularly because it's not often in Mark Jesus is called the Son of God. And uh, we'll look at that maybe a little bit more when we come uh, to, uh, to some other passages uh, dealing with that. But, but that's just kind of intriguing to me. Um, so, Jesus is declared God's Son. God was so happy with him. Where's the next place Jesus went? The wilderness, and what happened to him out there? Satan sent him. Yes, he is. And um, there's several things I think when I see that. One is, well, that's weird. Jesus does what pleases God, and next thing you know, the devil's attacking him. Shouldn't it be that when we start pleasing God, Satan quits bothering us? doesn't seem to work that way, does it? Do you see why not? Who does Satan need to attack most? Those he doesn't have already. Yeah, exactly. So, I think this is pretty normal. You know, well, you'll be tested when you start trying to do what's right. Um, another thing that's just impressive is that Jesus is able to withstand the temptations. And uh, you think about the setting. Where was Jesus? And who was with him? Satan. Satan. And? Wild beasts. Wild beasts. Reckon whose side they were on. 
Probably not Jesus, is in this case. Who, what other human being is with Jesus? Evidently no one. Do you not find that <laughs> Satan often tempts the most when we're alone? Think about the first temptation that you ever see in the Bible. Remember who was tempted? Eve. Now, I don't know where Adam was, but the temptation is presented to Eve herself. It's not a group temptation there. And I think the devil likes to isolate and conquer. You might think about that in terms of how we can even overcome temptation. Um, all right, I'll pause there. Do you have comments or questions on 9 to 13? What do you think he chooses to introduce Jesus like this? I think to show his greatness. You know, Jesus is God's great son, and he's proven and victorious. We really need to pay attention to Jesus. We haven't come to any teachings of Jesus yet. But before we've ever come to the teachings, we see good reason to pay attention to those teachings. Has there ever been anybody like Jesus? So that's what I see in this, is he's really getting us ready to really give, you know, the utmost attention to Jesus. Other questions or comments? So this is the, <laughs> the third time, in a sense, where Mark has said, this guy is really great, we should listen to him. Yes, yes. In a sense it is, or fourth, depending on how you count them, but yes. And I think it all builds up this idea in the very beginning of the greatness and authority of Jesus. He doesn't embellish these stories. Do you see that? We already said that with John. But he doesn't really give us a lot of details about the baptism except the relevant ones to show his authority. He definitely doesn't give us details about the temptation. You know, and we're tempted to go back to Matthew and Luke and tell all about that. You know, but he's not wanting to bog down the story with all the details. He's wanting us to see the point Look at who Jesus is, how great he is, so that we're really ready for his presentation of Jesus. Starting in verse 14. That's what I see. <clears throat> Obviously, I am looking at this in a specific way. That doesn't mean there are other ways to look at it. You know, do you ever try to outline uh, maybe a, a book or a chapter in the Bible? And then you see somebody else outline it differently. And you wonder, well, which way is right? Well, sometimes they're both right. Sometimes you've got meaning both ways. And so there may be, uh, there are other themes in this we're not even looking at. And maybe other ways to analyze this. This, to me, is the most obvious point John's made, or Mark's making. Uh, but, but, you know, I don't want you to think that somebody couldn't see other threads of thought running through this that are also valid. Now, look at verse 14 and 15. In a sense, when you see Jesus there, what does that remind you of? It hasn't been long. What does Jesus remind you of? John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching. Yes. So you've got Jesus coming preaching, just like John did. What else reminds you of John? In just verse 15 or 15? 14, 14, 15. He's preaching repentance. He's preaching repentance. Is there anything else that, any other way that's sort of hinted at where Jesus reminds you of John? Not from what we already know, but from what we will know. Look at the beginning of verse 14. What's going to also happen to Jesus? So, in a sense, John is almost the foreshadowing of Jesus. John came preaching, repentance, and then was arrested. 
Jesus now comes on the scene preaching repentance and then we know he'll be arrested. Now, the point I really want to stress here and, and I think maybe as important as anything just in terms of what we've seen is this idea of repentance. That's key. That's John. That's Jesus. If you want to come to the Lord, you have to what? Change. You can't stay like you are. I mean, you know, we want the benefits. We don't want the responsibilities of following Jesus so often. Well, give me the forgiveness. Give me the fellowship. Give me the salvation. But you don't get that without repentance, without the willingness to change your life. That's John, that's Jesus. And Mark hits us with that twice here in the first 15 verses. Comments and questions? Alright, 16 to 20. Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. <coughs> and Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the ship, mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants, and went after him. You know, this story always used to bother me. I'm going to violate my rule right now. But this story always used to bother me when I was a kid growing up. Because I thought, I mean, here's this stranger just comes up to these guys and says, follow them, follow him. And they do. And I thought, you know, if a stranger came up to me and said, follow him, I don't think I would. And so it really made me feel bad. Until sometime later, I studied the Gospel of John and found out the fishermen already knew Jesus well. They already heard him preach. They'd seen him do signs. They already knew what we know about Jesus. How great he is. And so this is not a stranger coming to them. This is them with the understanding of the greatness of Jesus. And this is really intriguing then in, in the sense that I believe that we can see right here the proper response to someone as great as Jesus. What impresses you about these fishermen in this story? Their immediate reaction. Alright. When Jesus speaks, they respond immediately. That's because they understand how great Jesus is. Are there changes you need to make? And you think, you know, I, I, I'm going to do that one of these days. Jesus wants me to change this. I intend to. I'm going to get around to that sooner or later. If you say things like that, you don't understand Jesus. If you understood the greatness of Jesus, and you see a change you need to make to, to obey Jesus, you do it immediately. They knew who Jesus was. They responded immediately. What else impresses you about him? Course they sacrificed. What did they sacrifice? Their jobs, their homes, their family. Yes. They left their nets, and for them fishing was an occupation, not a hobby. And they left their father and the hired servants. They put Jesus above job and family. You wouldn't do that with just any ordinary Joe. He is so great. They're willing to put his call above everything else in their life. That's exactly the proper response to Jesus. He demands radical commitment or obedience. And the fundamental point is, what did Jesus say to do? What's the imperative verb in Jesus' statement? Follow. And they... Follow. So they obey, 
immediately above every other consideration. That's the right response to the greatness of Jesus. And we get it right off the bat here. They are now going to become constant companions of Jesus, being trained to use different nets to fish for men. Comments and questions? Good question. Knowing what we do, that these four fishermen know Jesus, we get that outside of the context of Mark. Yes. Would I'm trying to figure out how to ask it? Would Mark's leaving that detail out be Mark saying, "I told you three and four times, Jesus is great. Here's evidence to how great Jesus is." Or does that make sense? What what I'm getting at? My guess is Mark assumes it. Okay. I mean. I think that's a reasonable assumption, even though it wasn't mine as a little kid. And so I think he doesn't bother to tell us because he assumes that we wouldn't understand that they would have already known Jesus. I don't think it's that Jesus had some sort of uh, special magnetism about him that you could just look at him and see you needed to follow him. So that's, that's my feeling about that. Good question. Go back to 15. Yes, you can. Um, is it interesting that Jesus uses the word gospel? Since it's, well, it can't be the gospel that we think of when we think of the gospel. Um, because he tells them to believe in the gospel, but as we know it, that would be like Jesus' life. Um, so here he's just referring to the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, that's a good that's a good observation. I think what I'd say is <clears throat> the gospel really refers to the good news of Jesus who is there as Savior bringing salvation. Obviously, we have more in the gospel that we know now than they would have then, but still the gospel is the coming of the Messiah, bringing the kingdom and salvation. So, in one sense, it's the same gospel, we just have a whole lot more details now that we understand in that. That's what I would say. It's still the good news that Jesus the Savior is here. Good question. Going back to his question a little, um, it's it's not that Mark is leaving out the detail that... Jesus and had met Simon and Andrew and James and John and talked to them before. He's not leaving that detail out to be deceptive. That's correct. I mean, I mean, when you're talking about themes and which piece of information to put on, I keep going back to law school where we were told, you know, you look at the facts of the case and you put them, depending on what you're going for, you have good facts and bad facts and you emphasize the good facts and you minimize the bad facts, you still come up with something that is, you know, strictly true, but because of the way that you've shaded and, and wordsmith things, you know, the little old lady was crossing the street, she was in the zone of safety as opposed to, you know, she was, this woman was walking across the street and it makes a difference in how it's perceived. So, here, maybe we should be attaching Jesus came and preached these things to the following verses as well, almost like it's doing double duty in both sections. Yes, yes. Um, We tell stories to make points. We may tell stories to make deceptive points. And we omit or color details to try to mislead. Other times we may simply omit details so as to not clutter up what we're saying so that we can make the point more clearly. We always do that. If you tell a story, you do not tell every detail. You tell the details that fit the point you're making with the story. 
And if you're not being deceptive, then it's totally honest and above board. Even though there's more to it, surely you don't tell every detail. That would be really boring. <laughs> you know, so you have to decide what you're going to bring in. I, I assume that Mark already, uh, you know, is expecting us to, to realize these fishermen knew Jesus. So he doesn't bother giving us an event to show us that. That's my, uh, that's my assumption on that. It seems like he's trying to give us like a, not, not, I don't want to say speedy start, but kind of like that. If you bog down with details that aren't relevant to your point, it makes the point much more difficult to see. We really need to think about that in our teaching, and our preaching. Because often, preaching loses impact when we say too much. We tell too many things <coughs> that are just sort of clutter. <coughs> and they take away from the point we're trying to emphasize. <coughs> people, do, you, do you notice some people tell stories better than others? There's a lot of reasons for that. But people who tell stories and they go into every possible detail in the story are boring. Somebody who tells a story and they kind of think through the points to try to contribute to the purpose, you get a lot more out of that story. It's more interesting. It's more coherent. Uh, there's a lot, so much of the Bible is story. And uh, there's, there's just a lot to even thinking about how you tell a story in getting to understand more what the author's doing in that. We wouldn't really have this discussion so much if it weren't for the fact we have three other parallel accounts. <laughs> That's what brings that up for us. It's true in other stories in the Bible too, but since we don't have a parallel account to Nehemiah, then we don't ever think about what Nehemiah may have chosen not to tell us about. <laughs> but we think about it here because of the four parallels. And yet it's really the same as in every storytelling book in the Bible. Other questions and comments? Let me start the next one. We may not finish this. Uh, but we'll we'll introduce it a little bit and talk a little bit about it and then let you think about some things with it. Would somebody read 21 to 28? <coughs> and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, and he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. But there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirit, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So, Jesus was where? Capernaum. Which was a city on the seaside. Where was he in Capernaum? Which is a what? Yeah, like a Jewish church building, more or less. And what was Jesus doing there? And what amazed the people about Jesus? He taught with authority and not like the scribes. Think about what you know about Jesus' teaching. Jesus would say things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Except you believe that I'm he, you'll die in your sins. Verily, verily, I say to you, my words will judge you on the last day. Jesus taught like he knows what he's talking about, and he's the one in charge. He's the one that gives the orders. But the rabbis didn't teach that way. They would teach, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, Rabbi so-and-so said that, Rabbi so-and-so said something else, and, you know, they go through all their justifications and so forth. They did not teach with authority. 
Jesus did. Now, there are people who teach like Jesus did today. People who teach, basically, I'm the one in charge, you just do what I say. And if you're very old, you remember the David Koresh's and the Jim Joneses and people like that, who taught you just follow me. And uh, I could teach that way. I could say, look, I'm the one with authority, do what I tell you. But if I claim to have authority, would you just accept that on my saying that I have that authority? Would you? Exactly! You'd, you'd say, prove you have that authority. That's what sets Jesus apart. He taught with authority and proved it. Now, here's, here's your homework then. In this section, I want you to think about how Jesus proved his authority and how did he prove his authority to teach? I think this section is really cool because it shows Jesus doing something that really proved his authority to teach. So I'll kind of leave you with that uh, question to contemplate. This is really good. I really enjoyed uh, doing this. Uh, really, you know, helpful. I, I love Mark, and uh, so being able to talk through this is uh, really good. And um, my plan of uh, attack is at least for two or three more uh, Mondays, I'll be here. Then I'll be gone to Brazil for a couple of weeks.